The opinions expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of History, Carleton University, its staff, faculty, or students. You're listening to Patterson 406, an occasional series of podcasts from the Department of History at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Hi, my name is Sean Graham. I'm a professor in the History Department at Carleton, and this fall I've been responsible for organizing the Shannon Lectures in History. The Shannon Lectures are a series of thematically linked public lectures offered by the department each autumn and made possible through the Shannon donation a major gift from Lois M. Long in memory of her parents James Buchanan Long and Ida Mae Davidson. Dr. Catherine Cook is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Montreal, where she is currently developing programs and courses in public archaeology. In this talk, Dr. Cook reminds us that colonization at its core is about the extraction of resources from those without power, and she asks what gets extracted in digital colonialism, and what does this have to do with archaeology in Canada? Considering the critiques, questions, and fallout regarding digital corporations, capitalism, and politics over the course of the past year, we are ever more acutely aware of the much darker underbelly of the digital world. And yet, we still act as if digital technology is the answer to solving these great challenges facing archaeology today. That is, the lack of equity, inclusivity, access, and the unwavering manifestations of neocolonialism. In her talk, Dr. Cook considers the realities of digitally disrupting archaeology, the opportunities it presents, but also the dangers it poses to argue that not all data, not all audiences, and not all archaeologists are treated equally in digital practice. Digital archaeology will not save us from bad archaeology, so we must learn to decolonize the digital first. Well, that's quite the introduction. Um, I would like to begin by acknowledging with the deepest respect um, that the land on which we are gathered is the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people and to recognize my position here as a settler and a visitor to these lands. But in fact, this is only part of the story um, when I think about the relationship between landscape, heritage, and archaeology. Um, I spend most of my time now working on the traditional and unceded territory of the Mohawk peoples and a place which is connected to a lot of different nations um, for a long period of time. And the research and work that I will be discussing in part was um, largely completed whilst on the traditional territories and unceded territories of the Kwangan people, um, the Songhees, the Esquimalt, and the Wasanich peoples, whose historical relationship with the land continues to this day. And also work that was completed on the lands of the Taino and Kalanago people, um, who were exploited, enslaved, and eventually forced from their lands in the 16th century, while connected to an institution that has gained and benefited from all of those exploitative relationships. There's, of course, many more threads um, in this relationship that makes archaeology, and particularly um, public archaeology, a really complex um, and difficult but much-needed area of research. Um, and I think thinking about the legacies of archaeological and historical research today, um, all of these threads end up leaving out um, the internet. Um, but if we're working in the 21st century context, we can't really leave the internet out of this. Um, but today, all of this archaeological and heritage data is stored, shared, moved, duplicated, tweeted, and retweeted um, across territories and through space and through time in ways that are almost inconceivable to us. Um, and I don't think we spend a lot of time in thinking about the ways in which that has mediated our relationship to heritage, um, but also complicated what we're 
what we're supposed to be doing as archaeologists and maybe what defines good archaeology or bad archaeology today. And I think that this relationship between heritage and the digital networks that we have created um, really does need to be rethink, rethought um, and reworked and, and hopefully recrafted in a different sort of way. So what I'm hoping um, to talk about and to think about um, today is really whether or not digital archaeology is inherently bad um, or if it's just a lot more complicated than we let on, um, a lot more complicated than we have answers to perhaps, um, and, and what, what would maybe define a good digital archaeology in future. As archaeology and history, of course, become increasingly digital in terms of our methods, in terms of the way that we work, um, practice, but also disseminate the results of our research, we don't just kind of replicate the existing problems in our discipline, and I would argue that there's a huge slew of existing problems, um, but it actually complicates a lot of these intricacies and politics of practice um, in the structures that we create on the web, in digital archives, um, in the ways that data and archaeological research is preserved um, and shared. So the first step, I think, is in accepting the reality that the application of technology is never neutral. Um, it's never really equitable. I would argue that it's never wholly accessible to everyone, and by virtue of that, never wholly inclusive either. Um, so while I would argue that we've only begun to address some of these intricacies of inequity and non-inclusivity um, in kind of traditional archaeology or traditional history, um, the speed at which digital technology is moving is forcing us to adopt a lot of these things before we've fully thought out the consequences um, for some of these practices and we're setting up a lot of precedents that I think will prove to be very problematic in future if they have not already done so today. Um, and I think that this really could be argued in a lot of different ways and since I have a time limit for today um, I'm going to focus primarily on the framework of digital colonization and what that means for archaeology and heritage and historical practice um, and ways that were embedded in this long history of inequity and structural problems um, that predate the internet, predate digital practice, um, but in many ways the digital is just making it a lot more messy and a lot more difficult to kind of divert in a different direction. The frameworks for digital access, control, and power are increasingly being critiqued elsewhere by, as neocolonialism, um, the ways in which they replicate or reformulate direct and indirect forms of control, um, and that the digital is also deeply embedded in forms of capitalism, globalization, and cultural imperialism that also work to maintain this hegemony. So thinking a bit about what makes digital a neo-colonial practice and are we as archaeologists kind of buying into that in the ways that we're adopting technology. At the same time, the digital has also been heralded as a decolonizing practice because we can amplify voices that have been historically marginalized. We can get access to different perspectives and give access to different perspectives and voices. Um, and that's really exciting. Um, but at the same time, these web-based platforms are also leading to a lot of dangers for people and putting people in um, positions that are perhaps even more problematic um, than we care to recognize. Um, so are we actually creating space and supporting different voices? Are we actually challenging our own perspectives and frameworks? Or are we simply replicating them um, in a different format? So there are many ways in which I think digital practice in archaeology and heritage and history um, kind of reformulate these forms of neocolonial practices. Today I'm going to focus on just three of them, uh, which will be thinking about digitally mediated experiences of heritage, thinking about digitally mediated access to archaeology, particularly in the context of databases and archaeological data, the open data movement, and then thinking a bit about digitally mediated production, and I'm framing that really as what archaeological research looks like today. I'm going to start at a point that I think is probably most familiar to all of us, no matter what our background is, um, and that's digitally mediated experiences of heritage. So whether you're the type to go to museums or not, um, we do all engage with heritage landscapes on a regular basis, moving through our cities. Um, 
and because we are now always kind of have technology stapled to the palm of our hand usually, we are now all experiencing heritage landscapes through a digitally mediated view of that world. Um, so every time that you kind of move through that landscape, you're also now interacting with it, whether you're you know following GPS on your map or taking photos of it, it's being mediated through a different form than 20 years ago perhaps. The problem then becomes that that mediation is not necessarily equal, it's not necessarily inclusive, um, and it's definitely not always appropriate. So I usually like to start this by thinking about Pokemon Go. Um, I imagine sometimes it seems like a really ridiculous place to start this conversation, um, given that it's a game, it was a major fad. Um, but I think that it's exactly that kind of short-lived ubiquity that makes it such a pop culture thing um, that it, it can't really be passed up on. If you are unfamiliar with Pokemon Go, it was an augmented reality gaming app that was launched in 2016 in which you could go out into the world and catch Pokemon and, um, in specific public locations and, and it really did create a phenomenon like no other. Um, specifically because it was gamified in public spaces. So you would see droves of people out in parks and things um, playing on their game, usually with their cell phone right in front of their faces. Um, but because it was a publicly spaced game, it meant that heritage sites and museums and cemeteries, which are often pegged as public spaces, became some of the, the most popular places to play this game. Some museums and heritage sites um, adopted this as a great opportunity to attract a much younger demographic, something that most museums are definitely trying to do on a regular basis, um, to develop digital interactions without having to develop a really expensive site-specific app for themselves, um, and also thinking about different and kind of new things that they could kind of add some energy to their spaces with. So there are special events, there are activities, there are promotions based on Pokemon Go. Um, and I, th I would argue some really creative projects came out of museums thinking about how they could connect into this phenomenon. At the same time, however, there were certain situations where that started to seem a little bit maybe inappropriate, um, definitely a little bit kind of made people a bit queasy about it. And it was typically sites that are associated with more kind of tra traumatic heritage, um, a lot of more emotionally charged sites, um, sites that maybe are related to a bit more of a sense of sacredness. Um, so things like cemeteries, Holocaust memorials, or museums. Um, the playing of Pokemon Go in those sites um, started to rub people the wrong way. Public re reactions, on the other hand, also diverged um, a lot on online forums. We can see that there are a lot of people who are really excited about the prospects of um, being able to play in heritage sites and cemeteries. Um, there are people who talked about family outings to a cemetery and playing Pokemon Go while visiting a grave. Others proclaiming they hoped to be a Pokestop when they died. Um, at the same time, there was also a lot of comments that suggested confusion or discomfort or an uncertainty about whether or not this was okay. And how do we actually have that discussion about whether it's okay to play a game in a cemetery or whether it's okay to do Pokemon Go in a, a Holocaust museum? And, and attitudes and relationships to that technology diverged not solely based on kind of generations or cultural backgrounds, but it seemed to be a very individualized experience about whether or not you had that knee-jerk reaction the moment that you entered into that space. The official reaction, though, um, was quite speedy um, and often um, very oppositional to um, the playing of Pokemon Go. For archaeologists in particular, um, I think it's great because it, it actually resulted in a whole bunch of new material culture in cemeteries, um, which was telling people to not play Pokemon Go in a particular space. Um, but I think it also creates an interesting dialogue between which spaces it was okay to play in and which it was not. Um, so at the time, my kind of hometown cemetery was Hamilton Cemetery, um, and their reaction was to ban Pokemon Go in all of their municipal cemeteries. Uh, they had the ability to police that, literally having police go and monitor and kick people out who were playing the game. Um, there were signs up. It was uh, immediately kind of shut down on all fronts. 
in stark contrast, it took two months of protests and complaints and trying to argue for the removal of a poke stop in the traditional Klatletene Cemetery, which is near Prince George in BC. Um, there were concerns about trampling of graves, um, damage to traditional sculptures and carvings, um, and potential also emotional damage to the community as well. Um, but their arguments were often ignored by Pokemon Go, um, but also by the communities around them um, who they were trying to make this argument to. Pokemon Go, of course, was not consciously designed to kind of draw these lines between um, indigenous communities and settler communities. Um, it was not designed to create trauma within communities, um, but the ways in which it was automated based on public data um, meant that it was very difficult for communities to opt out who, if they didn't have the resources already to implement in those contexts. Um, so Hamilton, as a municipality, had the money to get police out into their cemetery on a regular basis to monitor this. Um, other communities, particularly communities that were marginalized, historically disenfranchised, and resource strapped as a result of it, did not have these same resources to put a stop to something that they didn't feel was appropriate. The public outrage also replicated these same lines because there was widespread shock um, in other places, such as Hamilton, about the idea of gaming in these cemeteries. Um, in Prince George, there was not the same um, kind of call to arms for a large community. Um, so there's, again, the sense of differential access to heritage, but also differential control over what's being done in heritage sites. I had a good experience in the same moment where I was trying to um, test out some new photogrammetry apps to make 3D models of cemetery monuments, which was a research project that I had on the go at this point. So I found myself in Hamilton Cemetery with my phone out, kind of walking around monuments with my phone in front of my face, looking probably not all that different from the teenage boys who had been trying to play the game um, as well. Um, and I had the, the police car slowly drive by me and say nothing. Um, and part of me started to question that element. I also have this major fear of being um, doing something illegal, so I had my like heart rate rising, um, wondering if I was going to have any trouble as a result of it. But what it led to me to think about was what makes my work as an archaeologist standing in a cemetery doing something on my phone, um, what makes that different than someone who's playing a game in the cemetery? Is it simply because I'm seen as a professional, um, as doing something related to science? Um, the idea that archaeology is somehow for the greater good, um, which is a theme that I'll, I'll pick back up in a, again in a moment, but what makes my work as a digital archaeologist different than someone playing a game? It's also important to think about the ways in which um, these issues are not simply driven by commercially kind of driven applications like Pokemon Go, even in contexts in which we're looking at work that's been done by um, largely professionals and academics, there are still huge debates about what can be digitized, what ways in which we want people to interact with digital technology. Um, and, and often this is really driven, again, by these same fads of speed, of um, creating some kind of spectacle or sensationalism that will draw people's attention. Um, and, and we run into the, a lot of the same problems. So the reproduction of the Palmyra Arch, for instance, um, which was a $140,000 project, so it was not small potatoes um, in terms of the heritage world. Um, and it was a digital project from beginning it to end. So they built the model based on crowdsourced digital imaging. They had it carved by 3D carving bots, apparently, in Italy. Um, and in the end, a lot of what they produced was also in the public domain. So there are open access models. Um, the model that they produced was put into public spaces. Um, there are a lot of Creative Commons licensed resources that they've also created. At the same time, it stirred up a huge amount of controversy, um, largely due to its placement in various Western countries, countries and locations that have massive colonial histories to them, um, such as the center of London or in front of the Washington um, White House, for instance. Um, there's a sense that there's a bit of a neo-colonial flavor happening here. Um, 
it, and it left a lot of bad taste for a lot of people around the world. Um, it has been critiqued um, as the project by white tech bros, for instance, as an act of visual colonialism, um, where the gesture, it, gesture is seen as so simplistic without thinking about how it's different where when Westerners or tech companies save cultural things compared to when someone else actually coming from the culture saves those things and how that actually influences the conversation. And I think that's a really important part to make because the, the Palmyra Arch was often put in places with no discussion, with no interpretation, with no context, with no dialogue that followed that to actually unpack some of the things that were going on around it. Uh, and I think the work of Dr. Zina Kamash um, and the project Postcard to Palmyra is a really interesting way forward on the same front because it was actually looking to think about how we spark those public dialogues about what we're saving and why and who gets to choose what is saved and how and where and where that gets installed. Um, thinking about critical engagement with aesthetics and authenticity and colonialism in the digital era. That was the point of the project, was to engage with a lot of these problematic elements and they had a lot of great success and great conversations about this. So overall, the project, which has some problematic elements and some really great spin-offs and reactions um, that I think are really valuable, has become this catalyst for thinking about the role of digital technology in mediating our experiences of heritage and who gets to make these decisions about where heritage is going to exist and who has access to it. But the problem is that it also sets a lot of precedents in motion. Um, so these hyped, high-impact projects tend to open the door for other similarly modeled projects um, without thinking about the hyper-political sphere in which heritage operates today. Technology itself is not, I think, fundamentally at odds with um, heritage or archaeology. And I think that as some of these projects have pointed out, you can actually use them to really counteract neocolonialism, really think about power structures and how to engage with dialogues around them. So there are a lot of apps and games that are emerging that actually are specifically designed to reconfigure settler perspectives of the world and really make us think about what we're doing and where we are and how our, our own sense of privilege and empathy um, need to really be developed and thought through. And I think that has a, an incredible amount of potential for archaeology and for history. Augmenting and transforming realities that we cannot ignore in this way um, has a lot of opportunities to benefit and, and change the, the systems of exploitation that in many ways we are just kind of replicating as we move along. And I think that that would be a much more exciting role uh, for digital applications in archaeology and heritage to play. Um, thinking about how we can actually challenge us to do better and to see better um, and then the, the implications being that hopefully we can, can do better in the long run. I think in order to create such digital heritage experiences, however, we also have to take a moment to also change approaches to access um, and perspectives to access um, in archaeology and heritage, whether it's accessing archaeological sites, access to data, and access to our interpretations or results, however you want to see it. Access is a very long-standing problem in archaeology. Um, it predates digital realms for sure, um, from the ways that we have often stolen artifacts and moved them into museums on other territories, um, the ways in which we tend to hoard data and not share it with people, to the problem of reproducibility and evaluation from the kind of scientific academic side of things. Overall, the open access movement um, in archaeology associated with burgeoning data repositories, um, but also methods for analysis using R, etc. All of these things are making incredible inroads in changing the way that we think about data and the ways in which we archive our data and, and ensure some form of sustainability or preservation. Um, but the problem is that it's not actually challenging a lot of these notions of equity and control and power um, in the ways that potentially um, it needs to be. Um, and a lot of that is coming back to this argument of being for the greater good. Now this lecture series is, is set up in such a brilliant way um, that I might actually cite Keisha Supernant's talk from a couple weeks ago here um, because she defined what bad archaeology is in such a great way that it 
it is a good starting point for this discussion as well. And in particular, she was evaluating the role of stewardship um, as a fundamental principle of archaeology. The idea that's rather problematic, in fact, that archaeologists have the right to study human history because it's for the greater good. We're preserving it for future generations, whatever that might mean. Um, but it's the sense that we're doing some form of greater good. But who decides what is for the greater good? And also, why is the greater good necessarily benefiting certain people a lot more than another group of people, perhaps? And what gives us the right to own or to study or to decide on what is studied about the past? And I think that that was a really poignant question to ask. And so I think thinking a bit about also what gives archaeologists the right to digitize anything um, is an important question as well, whether it's digitizing sites or objects or knowledge. Um, in a lot of ways, when we think about the open access movement, it's built on this argument that we're stewarding away heritage for the future, that we're creating these big data repositories that will allow archaeologists in the future to continue to study and understand and explore these worlds. Um, but there's also a sense that there's this kind of publicly funded realm that if we're publicly funded, we should be making everything publicly available. Um, there's a sense that it goes against ethical policies if we hoard our data and don't share it, um, again, based on this view of stewardship. And in fact, I think I've made this argument uh, far too many times now as well in arguing for open access data. And I don't think open access data is fundamentally wrong or flawed. It's just that when you make an open-ended kind of blanket statement like we need to make data open in archaeology, um, it takes out those kind of politics and social contexts and meanings that make open data actually really inappropriate in certain contexts. Um, and if we're putting pressure on everyone to share their data, what kind of power structures does that create? Who does that exclude? Um, and who does it actually allow to move forward in their careers and advance and, and become illustrious archaeologists, perhaps? What does it actually mean to be publicly accessible? Um, because the problem with accessibility is that it's almost impossible to guarantee that something is accessible to everyone. What's accessible for one person is not accessible to another. And also, what is appropriate to be accessible to one person is very different from what someone else might think. So access in the realm of decolonization also means very different things to very different people for very different heritage or histories. To best illustrate this, um, I would like to start by taking us away from wintry Ottawa um, to the sunny Caribbean island of Barbados and some work that actually first led me down the path of what could be termed digital archaeology on some front. Um, and certainly a project that I now look at as being unbelievably naive, um, rather problematic at times, due to the complexity of the colonial heritage that it represents. So I first launched uh, the Monumental Archive Project following a year of participation in Michigan State University's Digital Archaeology Method and Practice Institute. Um, and I was just coming out of a PhD at the University of York. Um, I had spent several years studying the cemeteries of Barbados and during that time bumping into individuals in those same cemeteries that were from Guyana and various parts of far-flung colonies, other colonies, um, Canada, US, Australia, who are looking for their relatives in these monuments. Um, because there's this massive diaspora that happens in Barbadian history. Um, so it means that these original descendants of Barbados from the 17th, 18th, 19th century are now scattered around the world. And all of those encounters with people who are desperately trying to find some trace of their family in that um, island led me to think about open data and the fact that putting all my information into a thesis that would sit in a library in the UK was not actually going to be the most useful way for all of these individuals who are looking for their families to access the data because I essentially had transcribed monuments from all over the island. So I started thinking a lot about what we could do with open data. What I learned in that process is that there should not be a one-size-fits-all technology solution when we're thinking about data, when we're thinking about publicly accessible information relating to heritage. While I 
the time I thought it was the best approach for dealing with diasporic communities who are operating in a very globalized world. On the ground, it was a bit of a different story because heritage practice in these contexts faces a lot of challenges. The moment you try to open up to a lot of different people, you're facing problems with differential access to the internet, differential digital literacy skills, um, different views of what data should look like and how to access it and what is user-friendly and what is usable to different kinds of people in different places at different times, um, looking for different types of information about their families let alone the kind of impact of all sorts of environmental and economic and political um, structures intermingled with those elements. Part of the problem then is that I invested a huge amount of my time for the first couple of years out of my PhD in creating a solution that really benefited what I found out to be people in the US and Canada and Europe who are my primary users um, and downloaders of the data. Um, it wasn't actually reaching a lot of those people that I had met in cemeteries from Guyana and um, the Dominican Republic and Jamaica and all these other places. Um, at the same time, this work with this open access database has gotten me far farther as an archaeologist than the work that I did locally on the island, making sure that that data was also archived in the archives and accessible to people and creating different community-based projects. Those projects are seen as small potatoes and not as exciting and not as innovative. Um, so there's also this creation of structures that kind of push us in directions um, that are nece not necessarily the best for the communities um, that we're connected to, that we're trying to um, engage with, um, that we're trying to benefit since they have benefited us so much um, in working um, as archaeologists. And so there's a perception that is kind of starting to warp our values as archaeologists. And I think it's moving us away sometimes from this what we have promoted as public archaeology or pu public heritage, public history. We're moving in this direction that we kind of privilege certain types of public um, or certain types of projects that are publicly available. And this kind of continues some of these carefully created forms of colonialism. And I would argue that not unlike the ways in which heritage experiences like Pokemon Go and the Palomyra Arch are often presented without any kind of critical dialogue, um, which makes them problematic, um, there's no opportunity to kind of unpack some of these colonial narratives. Open access data is challenged by the same ways in which data are perceived as being neutral. So we can put them up on the internet without this kind of unpacking or kind of critical discourse about them because the data themselves are not influenced by our politics. But at the same time, you can't possibly expect that the people that are using the Monumental Archive project will necessarily take the time to think about who created that data or why. Or the fact that I am a white archaeologist who was working at a British institution at the time um, and partnered with the Anglican Diocese that has also been for centuries excluding and exploiting people. And I was researching the descendants of people um, that the British have enslaved and, and in many ways continue to benefit from that history. Or what that history means to the ways that that data has been shaped and created and structured into a database that is searchable and functional um, to actually understand what is accessible and inaccessible and, and why that data looks the way that it does. None of that is fundamentally visual, I guess, or visible as part of that database. And does that make it good archaeology? In a lot of ways, I think now that that makes it actually a really bad archaeology project. Um, and I think we need to think a lot more about the way that we tell stories and share stories and, and engage in dialogue around something seemingly as mundane as our data. Which takes me to my final realm, and I think that if you've been reading th between the lines throughout this discussion, um, in many ways I've been referring to what makes bad digital archaeology as that process of initial conception and not thinking through some of our digital applications from the get-go. Um, so I think that thinking through digitally mediated production of heritage or archaeological research or historical research um, is really one of the places where the answer lies in ensuring better approaches um, to digital archaeology to digital practice. Oh.
I think that there is a huge body of work today, particularly from the realms of public archaeology and public history, um, but also indigenous archaeology and indigenous history, um, collaborative and community-based approaches to history and research um, that, that are starting to trace lines that I think digital practice can really follow and utilize and benefit from. Um, and I'm not sure that it's something that is being taken up as much as it needs to be. Um, Sonia Adelaide's work, for instance, has built on the, up the concept of knowledge braiding, um, reflecting the potential for actually interconnecting different sources of knowledge, different forms of knowledge, different ways of knowing about heritage and history and archaeology, and interconnecting these in a way that actually makes a lot more knowledge and makes a lot more sharing and understanding of the past. <coughs> Rather than thinking of archaeology as necessarily conflicting with indigenous knowledge and values, Adelaide has discussed the ways in which things like um, analog methods like graphic novels but also digital applications um, like animation and virtual reality can be used to actually partner and intertwine indigenous knowledge, archaeological ways of knowledge, knowing historical documents, things like this, to mobilize knowledge in a better way and in a more equal and equitable way. At its core, it's not actually that contradictory or conflicting either with the way that digital humanities and digital archaeology are set up. Um, we borrow a lot from makerspaces and coders and hacker communities um, in the way that there's already a value of shared knowledge and shared practice where code is shared and reworked and co-authored and, and kind of reshared in that sense. So there's already kind of this democratizing effect in a lot of digital communities. There's already a long kind of long-standing history of collaboration. Um, but it somehow ends up being presented very differently um, than collaborative research like has been branded by Sonia Adelaide. Um, but it's already kind of in our blood as digital archaeologists, as digital historians. And I think that finding ways in which all of these things actually make a lot of sense together um, can, can build up a new way of doing digital archaeology. So I can defer here to some people that I consider kind of true pioneers in collaborative branding of digital archaeology building networks of knowledge and collaboration and community-engaged scholarship that is actually transforming the way that as archaeologists, as scholars, we actually conceive of digital applications in archaeology and emerging technologies. Um, so Beth Compton, for instance, has been looking at 3D modeling and 3D printing of um, artifacts from the Northwest Territories and also Ontario um, to think a bit about what it actually means to digitize an object. Does it change its value? Does it change its meaning? Um, what values do, does a 3D print have compared to a stone tool um, that has been excavated from an archaeology site, for instance? And I think developing the collaborative partnerships that Beth has done with a lot of community members, it's actually making us rethink the way that we might pick up a 3D print and, and think about it as an object in the world and challenging kind of our perception um, with thinking about a much more diverse world and different perspectives on these kinds of tech. My own experience um, thinking about collaboration um, has merged from working at the University of Victoria with the Royal BC Museum and descendant communities in Victoria, BC, utilizing digital media and platforms as a way of sparking collaborations, um, structuring collaborations, and then also reshaping public engagement with the heritage and the knowledge that's mobilized through those practices. Um, at the heart of this project um, was actually a demand to decolonize archaeology on the west coast of Canada, reflecting perspectives from diverse First Nations who are connected to the history in the museum, as well as recommendations, of course, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to find ways that actually share um, archaeological practice and change public perceptions of what archaeological practice should look like today. Um, and, and really think about that element of what's public and accessible and why we make it public and accessible. Um, the projects themselves, the first one uh, was in the winter and spring of 2017, um, and it came out of this interest of advocating actually for better preservation of historical archaeology in the province of British Columbia. So it came out of a slightly different goal, um, and then we ended up kind of half stumbling. So this is maybe not the best example of 
kind of preconceiving a good, good solid project, but it came out of collaborations that drove it in the direction that it did. Um, and the result was that 12 students from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Victoria connected with the museum, connected with descending communities, um, worked on the Excavating Royal Jubilee pop-up exhibit um, that also had some digital media associated with it um, and web-based resources. And the second project was an interest in expanding that work. Um, and that second pop-up took place in the fall of 2017, this time with um, about double the number of students from two separate courses. So one course was based on the idea of public archaeology, the other course was based on the idea of digital archaeology. Um, so it drew on the skills of digital archaeologists to present the narratives produced by the public archaeologists and, and the idea that they could learn and work together and share skills. Um, and this project was again connected with the Royal BC Museum but also the Songhees First Nation, um, the descendants of the first um, Chinatown in Canada, um, as well as other community groups who are interested and connected to heritage um, represented by the objects that were exhibited. Because these projects were kind of first conceived as slightly pedagogical in nature, it was a training exercise, it was part of courses for me as a, a professor, um, it was based on the idea of professionalization and replicating a lot of the processes that we already see in museums where there is a slight separation between archaeologists who are working on the research and the, the narratives and then the digital kind of department that's kind of producing those into something that's digestible and consumable. Um, and then also consulting or advocating for communities, or drawing on policies. Um, so a lot of the students had to kind of digest these different branches of policy, these different structures of the museum, um, and find a way to work together and produce something that was deliverable in a very short time frame because it was also during one semester, essentially. The uh, approaches to collaborative and community archaeology were primarily defined by policies and um, develop development of relationships that the museum had already established with First Nations communities, which was um, really important for us. They're already doing a lot of these things, and, and so students were slightly parachuted into that because of the short term um, in which they had to work. But it also led to a lot of experimentation because technology moves at a swift pace, so some of the policy was already outdated, and thinking about how do we actually make policy that's maybe even sustainable or can kind of perceive where technology is moving and how to work that into institutional approaches to technology and heritage. Although the framework for the projects was actually fairly simple and seemed straightforward as every course seems when you design it. Um, the applications and the components that were crafted were heavily influenced by the research, um, the communities that we were working with, and also the individual school skill sets of each student who was involved. Um, so the applications themselves are extremely diverse um, and extremely creative, which I was very lucky with. Um, but it meant that not all the projects are actually digital because there were places where it seemed like analog applications were a lot more useful, whether it was because the audience that we were trying to engage uh, might be turned off or um, slightly frightened by digital technology because a lot of us have baggage related to technology. Um, but in other cases, it was because you know lighting in museums is often very low, which affects things like augmented reality apps. So thinking really about the logistics of how to implement this in a museum space, how to engage with audiences and make sure that they're um, interested in engaging with the narratives that you've created, um, and also how to create a really dynamic experience. Um, so there are projects that are kind of animated shadow boxes and illustrated works um, that are really evocative as storytelling devices and really immersive, um, but use absolutely no technology to them. Um, and that was really exciting to see as well to kind of experiment with who liked different types of uh, different types of application who was drawn to different types of applications um, did they work like we thought they were going to work or did people ignore them on the digital media side of things, um, there were some really great applications of augmented reality to make um, sign boards that are often really boring and 
typically ignored in museum spaces, um, more dynamic and interactive. Um, there was an interactive map that used 3D prints, but also um, Makey Makey, which is a small com computational device um, based on electrical circuits um, to make that interactive. Um, as well as projects with um, sound and narrative soundscapes, um, which are all available online now. Um, but there is a sense of how do we actually represent different types of heritage in an accessible way. So there are very visual things, there are very audio-based things, um, and there are very technology-based things, but also very analog-based things that were created and crafted. All of this ended up on a web-based platform, um, hopefully being archived. So the museum, it's a provincial museum, but it's located on Vancouver Island, which is in one tiny corner of a much bigger province. Um, so in order to actually try to engage with the entire province, um, the museum is doing a lot of digital and web-based um, platforms now. Um, so everything is hopefully archived there as well. Um, including these different links to the soundscapes or links to videos of different things that are installed in the museum or were installed during the museum's pop-up um, so that people can get that experience and understand what was going on um, without maybe necessarily taking that very long trip and ferry to Victoria. And I think that it was really the, the ways in which public and digital archaeology collided in this project um, that opened up a lot of the possibilities for thinking about mutually cultivating understandings of not only technology but also heritage and how those things um, actually relate to one another and influence one another and how that should be influencing our practice and our visions of what is public and what is open and what is collaborative in future. It was not by any means perfect. Um, there were two structures in particular that ended up being very difficult to work with. One being time. They said it was based in one semester of a university. Um, so that kind of 12 weeks is actually a very short time to do the research and then also produce narratives and then also produce the web-based things that people can engage with. Um, so the short timeline was a problem and that often led to balls being dropped, relationships with community members falling off the face of the earth, um, and, and some tensions arising out of that short timeline. Um, so that was a major problem. The other problem was that um, funding was very limited working with a university and a museum who have different fiscal years and funding structures um, with two early career researchers as the head of the project. Um, it meant that the first project operated on a budget of $100 and the second project operated on a budget of $200. Um, of course not including salary of museum staff and that sort of thing but it meant that everything was impacted by this need to do it on a shoestring budget. So I said already that hopefully everything is archived on the internet, but that was one of the places that we had to cut cut uh, corners essentially, and things are available on public platforms or free platforms rather than necessarily things that we know will exist in perpetuity. Um, so I, I did notice recently that a few things had fallen off the face of the earth and I kind of reinstated them. Um, but because I've moved on now, um, from that position, unless I continually go back as a voluntary person to look in on the project, um, it's very easy for these things to um, be lost to the world and to the ether. Um, so there's this sense that if we're going to promote digital programming and heritage, we need a lot more support and, and understanding for the time and the money and the structures that actually make these things go. And people are one of the biggest assets in this process and there needs to be a lot more support for how that works. So having said all of this, um, is digital archaeology inherently bad? Can it be used for good? Um, I think that the case studies that I've outlined here are not without their own failures, but also have pointed to some values in the ways that they reshape the ways that we can utilize voices and utilize knowledge um, and restructure things and rework things so that it actually challenges us for the us of settlers that I'm representing currently, um, us as archaeologists as well, um, challenge the way that we actually see the world, 
challenge the way that we go about our daily work as an archaeologist um, and what that means for the ways that we're engaging with things. Collaborative practice, I think, is um, far more than just an exercise of political correctness or placation um, in digital archaeology, but I think it fundamentally makes the work that we're doing far better and far stronger and far more legitimate. Um, and I think that it also offers really exciting opportunities because it's not just replicating what we're doing as archaeologists just in a digital format, but it changes what we're able to do as archaeologists. Um, and if that's not exciting, then probably archaeology is not the thing to be doing, but I think it really does reshape our ontologies and epistemologies and all those big fancy words, but at its core, it reshapes who we are as archaeologists um, and the opportunities that we have before us um, in reimagining and recrafting avenues of research, in avenues of engaging with people, because we are humans and we should be engaging with each other. Um, but if we really come at it from that perspective that digital technology is not neutral, it not only means that digital archaeology can be bad, but it means that it can be good, and it can be used in a really good way, in a strong way. Um, and we just have to be willing and determined to be resistant and transformative, um, rather than just complicit in replicating past legacies. So ultimately, lessons to take away, whether you are someone who um, creates digital heritage or history um, or simply consume it in heritage sites um, mediated by technology or not, um, I think that it's everyone's responsibility to be fostering this kind of collaborative work to ask questions about the types of heritage that we're consuming and whether it's good. Um, if it's not good, then police that and say that it's not good. If it is really good, then promote it and promote it for being good in that kind of collaborative and decolonized practice. Um, and really think about who is designing these things and what power structures they bring to it. There also needs to be that process of contextualization and debate and to help foster that critical consciousness um, rather than just the speed and spectacle of digital technology with its neocolonial undertones. Um, and I really think that when we recognize that not all data, not all audiences, and not all archaeologists are treated equal in digital practice, the path to digital decolonization becomes disruptive, um, but it also becomes a source in which we can be part of resistance and part of something much greater um, in future, I hope. So thank you, um, and thank you for coming today. Thank you for joining us today. For more on the Department of History, its programs, and its events, please visit carlton.ca slash history. I'm Sean Graham.